Hello, I am Noah Smith, and I am here with David Roberts, who writes the Substack Volts and has been a columnist for various publications, including Vox and uh, some other excellent ones. I've been reading him for many years, and uh, we're going to talk about climate change, technology, and fun stuff like that. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Ah, you know, it's going all right. I've been, I've been just so sort of absorbed in the, um, you know, in the war news coming out of Ukraine that it's been hard I've heard to, about it yeah it's been hard to you know kind of come up for air i guess and and really um pay attention to other things but i think i'm finally starting to be able to pay attention to something else notice the the part two of the ipcc report and the just released part three both basically were occluded by the war right so I'm going to tell me about those things actually. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is the, <laughs> it's this weird, it's a weird problem around these IPCC reports. Cause on the one hand, they are a great, uh, an obvious opportunity for everybody to kind of stop what they're doing and refocus on the climate problem and check in, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a, it drives it into the news, but in terms of the message, the details in the IPCC reports in terms of like what an average person on the street needs to know the overall shape of the message has not changed substantially <laughs> it's it's just a little bit more extreme on every measure right so the amount of time we have left to avoid 1.5 is shrinking and shrinking uh, we're not acting fast enough we're running out of time etc cetera, etc cetera. same story from the beginning and then concurrently, our ability, our tools that we have to address the problem continue to grow and get cheaper and more sophisticated and more available. So our power to solve the problem is, is rising alongside the severity of the problem. It's just applying the latter to the former that remains the problem. And it's interesting, this issue of the the IPCC report this this part 3 is about mitigation it's about solving the problem so it's it's interesting it's yet another sort of compendium of solutions but there's also stuff i have not gotten into read it yet it was just released in the middle of the night so i haven't gotten into read it yet but there's also some stuff in there from social scientists i think about finally about okay we've got all these solutions we've been listing them over and over again for years how what can social science or political science tell us about how to make these things actually happen and actually make governments do the things that we keep listing as as possibilities and that's like on the one hand i'm glad they're addressing that subject but on the other hand i fear that when i look at what they come up with it's just going to reveal what we all know which is that no one really knows right the right answer the answer to those questions so, so before we get into sort of the politics of it um there's some there's some sort of terms and ideas and facts that i think that even a lot of well-educated people who kind of follow climate stuff don't entirely know uh that people who are climate you know experts uh do know so I, I thought it would be good to go over a couple of those for example um over the last sort of two years i guess there's there's been a flurry of stories that say that while we've almost missed the window or, or missed the window for holding the world to 1.5 C of warming. 
the chances of getting the ca like catastrophic, you know, Earth dies scenarios of like, I don't know, 5C warming or, or some very large number like that have essentially been, if not ruled out, at least relegated to an extreme tail risk that nobody really thinks is going to happen. Uh, is that an accurate picture of how our sort of predictions have evolved? Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult even when you're familiar with the literature to wrap your head around it <laughs> in a coherent way. So, so you're right that early on, the sort of range of possible outcomes was much wider a decade ago, two decades ago, just because of the science, because of facts on the ground, but also mainly because of the science, we just couldn't and narrow it down much further. Time, right? We still had time to do more than we did. Yes, yes. So um, among the possible outcomes in those early reports were, as you say, four, five, six degrees Celsius of global warming, which is where you get into, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, very famously, a, a climate scientist named Kevin Anderson, a few years ago, I've quoted it many times since, it shook me the first time I read it, this was probably a decade ago, but basically he said flat out, four degrees of warming is incommensurate with ongoing, organized, advanced technological human civilization. And like, some of that is obviously guesswork. I mean, none of us, these are things none of us have ever seen or know anything about. So some of it is guesswork, but I think um, we can be confident that four and above four would just be, uh, you know, truly like uh, catastrophic on a, on a kind of sci-fi level. To, to so, quote Winston from Ghostbusters, that's bad. Yeah, that's real bad. Yeah, that's and, bad. and it is worth noting and celebrating the fact that since those early reports, we have been taking action. We have been doing stuff. And we have been, as they say, bending the curve. And we have shrunk the range of possible outcomes now. And now it looks like four and above is, as you say, a relatively low probability tail risk. Now, let's pause and say, given the stakes of that, you'd like to be really sure it's not going to happen, right? The fact that it's just like low probability now is of, of limited comfort. I, I, I think that's worth emphasizing. Like, uh, it's still a possibility. There's still things we don't know, still things that could happen. But now the sort of the median guess, the median projection is around 3.2. So yes, we've really? limited... Yeah, I, I had seen lower numbers. I had seen numbers like two point something. I think uh, in the IPCC, it's 3.2. Oh, I'm in IPCC. Sure. Huh. Yeah. So that's, I mean, we sort of have to recalibrate. That's, we don't know exactly how bad that is, but it's super clear from, you know, a couple, <laughs> a couple of reports ago that even the difference between 1.5 and 2 is super bad right there's like there's so many degrees of bad we're talking about here it's hard to calibrate them but it's real bad to get up to two and between two and three will be real 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 bad so let's uh, the Let, whole let's point, talk about that point let's of all talk this about that is, because because i think that's that was going to be my next question it's a thing that people don't understand and even i don't understand because when i look at when i look at you know these comparisons i see 1.5 compared to three you know what's the difference between 1.5 and 2 what are the things that happen that you get at 2 that you don't get at 1.5 
And what are the things that you would get at 2.5 that you don't get at two? Because I think to, to normies, these sound like small numbers, but they're not. Yeah, 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 yeah. These are very big climactic, <laughs> climatic differences. Well, you know, the whole previous IPCC report, the one that made such a splash a few years ago, was about exactly that. Why, what is the difference between 1.5 and two? And, it, you, you know, it has to do with, the percentage of land that will go into drought regularly, you know, the level of sea rise, the, the, all, all these things, the, the intensity of storms, it all just ramps up and ramps up and ramps up. But it, but, but around two, you get into what scientists are sort of, you know, this is an arbitrary line, but it's sort of where scientists start saying, you get into catastrophe, you get into like large parts of the world being uninhabitable for large parts of the year, things like that, massive because global refugee flows yeah just because of heat because i mean uh, lots of <clears throat> there are places in the world that even today are getting in the hottest worst times close to what they call wet bulb temperature which means you the, the human body simply cannot sweat fast enough to get rid of the heat and like you literally can't yeah. you die from being outside <laughs> and right. that's and that's already within well, reach in a few places some, some locations of the globe that are nearing wet bulb temperature I Some think part. in Iran, it's like it's the Middle East. It's where you it's where you'd uh, expect in the Middle East. So <clears throat> they're already, you know, undertaking. Uh, like I, I visited Dubai weirdly uh, a few years ago, and already like the the citizens of Dubai, not the workers, the actual you know wealthy citizens, spend almost all of their time underground. Like the the, the bus stations are enclosed. There are tunnels between all the buildings. There are tunnels between all the the transit stations. I mean, it's kind of weird. You only see kind of tourists on the surface. It's, it's creepy. And so that's between 1.5 and 2. As far as I know, no one has done a report specifically on 2 versus 2.5 or 2.5 versus 3. And you get into some speculation there because there are, you know, you get into the uncertainty bands the farther out you get and the farther high up you get in temperature. It, but it seems to me that 2 versus 2.5 is now sort of the salient question because yes. if we've missed if we've missed 1.5 and we have a good chance to hold it to two if we in if we you know double down on all our policies and and really double down on renewable energy etc we then we have a chance to hold it to two then we're talking about two is the good scenario and 2.5 is the bad scenario so i feel like it would be helpful to have a little more concrete idea of two versus 2.5 you know what exactly we're talking about to focus people's minds yeah and there are there are you know you can't find in the old ipcc reports these sort of temperature diagrams which show as the temperature rises more and more effects you know you get the species mm. die out and species migrations and the number of millions of people who will migrate away from the coasts and away from hot zones rises and rises right. but we don't i mean the huge variable here is how will I mean, the, the one huge variable is how will human beings and human societies respond to those changes? I mean, a lot of the negative changes are roughly social and economic in nature, which could be, you know, dealt with sanely and well or insanely and poorly, which could <laughs> massively affect their magnitude, right? So it, th these things are very difficult to predict, but we don't always do the best job at dealing with these things. But I think just for, for normies, like 1.5 is not safe, but manageable. Two is really bad. 
and we look like best case scenario, we're going to skid in someplace between those two. And we really want to stop short of two. I think that's just like, and when you get beyond two, you start getting into sci-fi territory of like genuine international upheaval and mass death kind of things. Right. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about how to stop it. Obviously. Um, Can't say stop. Thing- Can't stop it. We can stop it. We, I mean, we, we have to stop it. We can, point, right? it's, it's already underway. We can, uh, we can slow halt, it. Halt the rise in temperature. Yes. Yes. What, what do we do to not to prevent any rise in temperature? Because some has already happened and more will happen. But how do we stop the temperature from rising? Yes. And you'll notice a subtle, uh, one of the shifts in the IPCC reports is there more and more talk about drawdown now, which is about going above 1.5 and then trying to pull back down to it which is extremely speculative and you know uh, i think in a lot of ways a false hope but it just kind of shows that what does that mean a drawdown does that mean like a carbon removal it means yes it means you're burying more co2 than you're emitting and temperatures will theoretically slowly start drifting back down i mean this is like a this is like a process of you know a century not a not something you can pull off quickly but if we're trying if we're aiming for a long-term stable climate we need to do something like that eventually got it um in terms of carbon removal technology it is still decades away from being economical at any sort of large scale right uh i mean it entirely depends on what you mean by economical it will never like, like if you're just talking like direct air capture, if you're just talking about like pulling carbon out of the air and putting it in the yes. ground, That's it right. will never be economical in the sense that you're not creating any value, any proximate value. So, so economics doesn't really apply, right? I sure. mean, it, Fair will be, it will be economic to the extent and only to the extent that governments decide to subsidize it, basically. Got it. Um, It'll get cheaper, right? Let's say let's say direct air capture gets cheaper than planting trees. Uh, I don't see that happening. I can see it getting mm. cheaper on a like a per ton of carbon basis, if that's what you mean, like the amount yes. of on, right. on a per ton. Uh, maybe Car- carbon carbon tons per dollar. Maybe, but my my general prediction, and this is a bit of a, a like a thirty thousand foot thing, is. Currently, the conventional wisdom is we want to electrify, clean electrify everything we can, clean up some remainder, and then bury what we can't eliminate. And my sort of general take on it is that that first step is going to get much farther, much faster than people anticipate, and thus shrink the need, shrink the need for the second two steps, not eliminate, but it'll be, I think there, I think the idea that direct air capture is going to play any substantial role in our sort of near-term effort to avoid two degrees is probably uh, not not right. not going to pan out, and not right. going to pan out because we're going to just find other ways to do it that are way that are cheaper well, than that's a, that's anticipated. A optimistic reason for it not to pan out, actually. That's <laughs> yes, like, that's, um, that, that's yes. good. All right, yes. so so let's um. Let's talk about some of the specific technologies. Now, everybody by now knows the story that solar has gotten incredibly cheap on the margin. Wind has gotten fairly cheap on the margin uh, for places where you don't have a lot of sun. 
uh, but solar especially has just gotten insanely cheap. But you have intermittency. The sun's not always shining. There's clouds. There's night. There's winter. Um, right. And so the so the question is, how do we store? So so I know people have said we need backup energy. We need uh, nuclear power. We need um, you know other sort of clean firm generation is the term that uh, Jesse Jenkins, uh, one of my favorite uh, analysts there, likes to use. But my question is about storage. My question is about, um, we've seen lots of improvement in lithium ion batteries, um, but my, my, the sort of the conventional wisdom here uh, mm -hmm. is sort of that they, only, they would only work uh, from day to night, that they wouldn't work for, or maybe if for like a short storm or clouds or something, but they wouldn't work for anything longer than like, you know, eight or nine hours. Yeah, let's <clears throat> let me back up one one step there because we could sort of go in by uh, by degrees. You're right. The bulk the bulk of power, not just for electricity, but the bulk of human power that we use is going to come from solar and wind in the future. If you look at the there's a, actually a really interesting graph in the in the IPCC report showing the relative contribution of different technologies to mitigation between now and 2030, and it's just wind and solar are giant and everything else is 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 competing for like a third of of that so that i think is absolutely rock solid and and as you say it's a it's a very it's a fundamental shift in the the paradigm of power instead of power you can turn on and turn off at will you have power that comes and goes with the weather basically that you're accommodating yourself to it rather than controlling it so you need flexibility on the grid that's a, the generic term, which can encompass both additional supply and generation options, like, like we're talking about hydro, nuclear, geothermal, all these sort of clean, firm generation options that you're discussing. And then there's storage, there's lithium-ion batteries, as you're discussing. There are a variety of long-term storage, early-stage long-term storage options that are just now being uh, innovated on there's there's pumped hydro there's and then there's also the, the perpetually forgotten but my favorite is the demand side is is ways of shifting instead of just generating more brute generating more when you need it change when you need it you can move demand around you can reduce demand there's a million ways to reduce demand and there's a million ways to move demand around so that it matches when we're receiving power so the, the, I have a question the, about the, the balance the balancing function for solar and wind is going to be some mix of those three demand got options it. storage options and clean firm options got it got it and Very, no one knows yet great. no one knows yet what the balance will be of those three although people say lots of confident things about it but no one really knows yet which how those three will balance out so you know from what i've read a lot of which is by you um my, <laughs> my uh everybody go to volts.wtf and, and read that yes subject. thank you um but from from what i've read basically in in terms of doing things at different times of day storage within the day is going to be good enough where it's that's not a huge problem i think the problem is is seasonal storage is, is that's what everyone seems to be saying the problem is summer to winter how do you mm -hmm. get you know the sun shines in the summer a lot doesn't shine in the winter a lot how do you get the power from summer to winter use either you you can use long-term storage 
uh, ramp up clean firm generation somehow, or you can do this demand shifting, but how do you shift demand between summer and winter? Do you just, do we go back to this agricultural model of making hay like with sunshines or something? Do we, do we go back to the model of having like a season for manufacturing? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, A, who knows uh, uh, what people will come up with, but I do think demand shifting is less relevant on the seasonal scale. That's where you turn uh, to storage, but you can, but you can shift demand in the sense of, um, you know, you can store, uh, well, this is more of a storage thing, but I've been looking lately into thermal storage, which I think is a, is a big overlooked kind of a dark horse here, which is just storing electrical energy as heat rather than as electricity. So there's a million, stuff. yeah, you can melt salt, you can shove it in bricks, you can put it literally in the shallow earth. I mean, that's basically what geothermal heat pumps do is, you can put it in earth, you can put it in buildings. I mean, buildings themselves properly sealed <laughs> with the proper technology and properly controlled with the right software can be grid assets, meaning they can be generators <clears throat> and they can serve as batteries. Because <clears throat> not only, um, you know, they can actually contain batteries within them, but just the thermal mass of the building itself can store um it can store a lot of heat so you can shift when heat is needed so that'll be a part of it but then aren't you hanging out in a hot building <clears throat> i mean like uh, uh like take your water heater for instance this is the, this is a classic example everybody uses right you don't care when your water is heated in your water heater right you just care that when you go to turn on the water there's hot water there right if it was heated at 2 a.m or whether it was heated at 8 a.m. If it's 9 a.m. and you're turning it on and you get hot water, you don't care. Right. As long so as there are shiftable, shiftable thermal loads, which are small in and of themselves. But once you get thousands, tens of thousands coordinated with software, then you're starting to look at, and it's the same with um, automobile batteries too, like, uh, mm -hmm. like car batteries. Once right now, we're just sort of throwing them out in cars and right. hoping for the best, but eventually we're going to be able to uh, coordinate the the uh, <clears throat> you know the charging and, and discharge of those batteries, and that's a ginormous distributed battery, like the world's <laughs> the world's biggest, especially as the EV market grows. <clears throat> so there are a million options. You're right. Current modeling shows that we do need, even with you know flexible demand, and even with a lot of storage options, we're probably still going to need varieties of firm generation and if you think about it like long-term storage and and firm generation are basically playing the same role it's just they can come on during those long right. lulls of of wind and, and solar they can come on during long lulls of wind and solar and they can run as long as you need them to run right, right? I, so they're I both basically doing that so right. all of which is just to say that like the whole nuclear question nuclear is a species of firm generation and it right. is right it is correct that we are going to need a lot of firm generation we don't know yet whether nuclear will be the cheapest and easiest right. form of firm generation fusion i'm a fusion bro <laughs> maybe maybe probably we'll not in the relevant i mean this is the problem with a lot of nuclear technologies is we need to be fully decarbonized by <clears throat> we need to be halfway there by 2030 and fully there by 2050. That's the idea. So a lot of these nuclear development ideas are just, you know, by the time they innovate yeah, and scale up, 
it's it's right they, right. they might just be too late that's they, they would be helpful said, i wrote a tweet that said nuclear used to be uh always 50 years in the future but now thanks to technological advances it is now only uh always 20 years in the future <laughs> yes um, the, the small nukes are forever i'm i'm right I, there. I love fusion but maybe not okay so but there are a couple technologies that i wanted to uh to ask you about one is um is hydrogen so you can use solar powered electricity wind powered electricity to electrolyze water into hydrogen and oxygen and then you can store the hydrogen in a tank and burn it for energy when you need it um why is or is not that a viable large-scale long-term energy storage option because you can keep hydrogen from the summer to the winter it, uh it, it it i mean it's not viable yet but it's absolutely expected to be i mean if you look at uh you know you look at sort of the most sophisticated current modeling there's a, i think there's a lot more of that than there is of nuclear power so so mm -hmm. hydrogen's hydrogen's kind of a the 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 wonder pill of the of the energy world it can do anything it stores energy right if you just use clean electricity to to electrolyze it then it's effectively a storage mechanism you can also combine it with a variety of hydrocarbons to come up with a variety of liquid fuels like ammonia that you can use to run ships and airplanes and all, all these right. all these hard to decarbonize areas um, where you need liquid combustible liquid fuels basically you don't know how to electrify them yet hydrogen fuels can serve those roles uh hydrogen can do almost anything the thing is it's still expensive to electrolyze it versus the way 95 percent of it is made today which is stripping it out of natural gas which is extremely carbon intensive process like most hydrogen today is super dirty that's people need to remember that okay, so but, but talking about clean hydrogen made from electrolysis via solar power and wind yes pure pure virtue but also quite expensive so what you're going to do expensive? is sort of what's expensive uh, it, about that uh it's a lot of uh power and and uh capex i mean it's it's okay <laughs> is it the storage or is it the power requirements of the electrolysis itself well it depends i mean the storage depends on whether you on what you're doing with the hydrogen where you can do a million different things with it if you're talking about compressing storage if you're talking about compressing it and storing it in caverns which is what which is where the seasonal storage comes in the mm -hmm. the the electrolysis electrolysis plus compression plus transportation plus storage just adds it up to be relatively expensive the, the only point being you need to start um with sort of the uh the maslow's hierarchy of needs here you need to use your hydrogen for the highest value uses first. And that will generally be parts of heavy industry that we don't know how to electrify mm, yes. yet, planes, right. ships, basically. And, and so you're, it's very doubtful you're gonna end up seeing hydrogen used in like cars. That's probably just not gonna happen. It's probably not gonna right. be used right. in residential heating. I mean, natural, mm. gas, natural gas companies are trying to It'll be now, like a power too... plant. A power plant has a, a a cave where they have a bunch of solar farms above ground, cave below ground, and they store energy as part of the solar during like extra peak times by electrolyzing a giant tank of water, storing the hydrogen in the cave, and blah blah blah. I mean, there's a, a, one of the funnest things to think about in the energy world, <laughs> at least I think so, is you know one of the problems we're going to run into pretty soon is during times of high wind or high sun, we're going to be generating more power than we can use contemporaneously, right? We're gonna have these huge surges of right. power. And right now, a lot of that gets 
curtailed, as they say, just gets cut off. So one of the fun things to think about is what could you do with all that extra power? Sort of what business model can you figure out where where um, mine Bitcoin irregulars irreg I mean that's because it's irregular surges, right? You don't have a steady supply. You're going to get these waves coming in, not always predictably. So what? So like, could you build a a Bitmine mining operation that could make money? operating intermittently or like a desalinization plant that could make money operating intermittently aluminum smelting it's tricky it's tricky to think what could operate intermittently but one one of the fun ideas is take a offshore wind turbine out in the middle of the ocean one of the most one of the expensive and tricky parts is connecting it via power cables to the shore what if you just didn't need any power cables what if it was just correct connected directly to an electrolyzer and it just sat out there in the middle of the ocean creating hydrogen all day long and so people could just come to the platform and fill up on hydrogen and take it where it needs to go you could just have a, a perpetual wow. hydrogen generating machine sitting out in the ocean that is starcraft level that is like <laughs> that is like the best bean gas extractor kind of that's all i mean the technology the technological pieces are all there i mean it would be a massive i mean it probably wouldn't be it probably wouldn't be economic currently just because the 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 market for hydrogen and the expense of the turbine but all these things are coming down so all these possibilities are coming into view just everything everything's becoming cheaper so so this is another thing that um constantly reading rama's nom uh (laughs) which is that everything sort of gets cheaper when you make a lot of it the gospel of rama as well uh, here's um the, the good news about that, there's this there's this team out of Oxford, actually, that's been doing a lot of study on this about learning curves. You know, learning curve is just when yeah. you double the deployment of a technology, it reliably falls in cost by X percent, right? right. I mean, d- different learning curves for different technologies. Two interesting things. One is not all, I mean, they, they did, they went back and did a really comprehensive study of past technology curves to find out like where are learning curves, what do they look like, how predictable are they, all this kind of stuff. And they found out not all technologies get on a learning curve, like to right. our to our nuclear knowledge, hasn't. nuclear has not gotten on a, a, a learning curve. It's but on the opposite. But the four core technologies of decarbonization, wind, solar, batteries, and electrolysis are on learning curves, which mean if they just continue on the learning curves that they are currently on and technologies tend to do that then they will utterly dominate within about 10 years just on pure economics they're going to utterly dominate the thing is most of these conventional projections you've probably seen these graphs online where you show like the iea or the eia projecting solar and wind costs they always show them leveling off over and over again they show them leveling off and over and over again they don't level off. They just continue right. going down. Why? It's, it's competing with interest rate forecasts to be the worst forecast it's, it's in the world. Un, it's unbelievable. So really, if you just, all you have to believe to believe that renewables are going to dominate soon is just believe that these four technologies that are currently on a learning curve stay on it. That's all that has to happen. And we and we win, basically. It. Like it's, it. it's, it's genuinely good news. It, I mean, there are... There's one more technology guaranteed. I wanted to ask you about. All right, there's no guarantee. But there's one more there's one more technology I wanted to ask you about uh, before we switch gears here, which is iron flow batteries, which I read about again 
on your Substack, which everyone here should read. <laughs> and so iron flow batteries are a much cheaper, made with much more plentiful elements. They're not something that could power your car, but they're something that could store energy throughout the whole season, potentially. And they're like batteries, lithium ion batteries have been on a learning curve. Maybe these kind of batteries are on a learning curve too. Uh, and maybe this could be a competitive form of seasonal storage. Is that right? Uh, it's a, a, a lot of, a lot of people think that's right. I'm a little bit bearish on them for the, for the simple reason that they're not, they're sort of in an awkward middle duration between short duration and actually long, long duration. They're sort of like mid duration. What's and their I think, duration? Uh, I, I mean, they're, they're good for like 24, 48 hours, things like that. A couple of days. Oh, they're not, oh, they're, they're not, not seasonal. Uh -huh. They're just I longer. I mean, I, I mean, this is all, I mean, in theory, because their electrolytes are just big tanks of fluid, you could build as big a tank of fluid. You like, you could build one that's as long as it would last as long as you want. If you just built a giant fluid tank. Right. But of course things get expensive at a certain point. So I, I my worry is that their market is going to get eaten on the short duration end by batteries, which keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, and cre like, you know, the conventional wisdom used to be that lithium ion would cover you maybe like two to four hours. Now you're, you're seeing them get to six to eight to 10 right. and they're just getting yeah. cheaper and cheaper. So I think like flows market is going to get eaten on the short end by lithium ion batteries and eaten on the long end by, by things like hydrogen or cheap, clean firm generation. So right. maybe they'll find a, a, a niche, but I really don't expect them to be a, a, a giant player. Got it. That's super, super important. Um, and uh, all right, so let's, let's shift gears a little to the, uh, to the politics of some of this stuff, which I know is super fun, right? It's, um, <laughs> it's much okay. less optimistic story there. Uh, well, we could, okay, so which would you rather talk about, offline or online first? <laughs> you, you, you pick you all right pick. let's let's talk about online people so online there are two <laughs> groups of people who while i think their heart is probably in the right place are their their shouting behavior online is not necessarily helpful <laughs> and the first group of people are the people we call the nuclear bros who constantly will come into everyone's mentions whenever you talk about climate change and say nuclear is the only solution to climate change the only way to decarbonize blah blah and if you don't agree, you're an asshole and a climate and a arsonist and a fake and a, and a you know, virtue signaler, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And the second group of people are the anti-hydrogen people, which whenever you mention, I mean, you've talked about electrolysis on the learning curve, hydrogen for seasonal storage, also for decarbonizing industrial processes. But a lot of people, the only time they've ever heard about hydrogen was when people were thinking about hydrogen cars 20 years ago, and mm. they, that didn't pan out. And so they come into your mentions and they're like, hydrogen will never work, it's a fake technology, it's fraud. Um, I would actually add a third group here, uh, just now that uh, there's so many annoying people. Online. There's a lot of groups. I could, I could, a lot of groups. I could taxonomize group, these groups for a long time. Right. The third group are people who think they're maybe not quite as annoying because sometimes they do have a point, but I think overall they're not super helpful, which is people who say that direct air capture is a trick by fossil fuel companies to allow them to keep polluting. Um, and then they will just yell at any sort of direct air capture, even as you know, forecasts for carbon removal are slowly being built into IPCC 
models and forecasts and recommendations. Not 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 slowly. I mean, people need to know this. The 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 the, the projections that show us succeeding at hitting our temperature targets involve gigatons of carbon burial. Most true energy heads I know view that partly at least as kind of a placeholder, like we don't know about other tech, we don't know what mm. else could do it yet. So we're just right. kind of using that as like, I see, because we don't want to say, we don't want the conclusion to be, we don't know how to do it. We can't do it. <laughs> That's right. They want to avoid that conclusion. So you just use what you have and then whatever remainder is left, you just attach a, a, a CCS sticker to it and say, yeah, we're going to bury 100,000 gigatons of, of carbon, whatever. Yeah. I mean, these things are tricky because in all three of those cases, and you could, as you say, you could list more groups, you have the same sort of dilemma, which is, you know, like starting with nuclear, like, yes, nuclear will play a role and needs to be on the table if done in good faith, not in a way that's meant to denigrate and slow other solutions. Similarly, hydrogen is going to be needed if done in good faith and cleanly, but not if used as a way to delay other solutions. And this is why people get upset about hydrogen is because oil and gas companies, I think, are starting to fixate on hydrogen as a lifeline, a bit of a lifeline, something that they, that they can um, uh, produce and take part in. Because, and, and the reason people get upset about that is, as I said, most hydrogen today is produced by stripping natural gas, which is super, super dirty. So we need to be boosting hydrogen, but also moving hydrogen away from its fossil origins. And there are a lot of fossil fuel companies out there engaged in a lot of double talk and a lot of, uh, you know, chicanery trying to make hydrogen into something that just is a lifeline for them. Right. They're not similarly, right. similarly with CCS, same thing. Like, like we already have too much carbon in the atmosphere for a state for a long-term stable atmosphere already today. So at some point, somehow we need to pull some of it out. So it's going to have to be part of long-term stable atmosphere i mean we need to get back down to about 350 ppm remember 350.org oh right whole, right right and we're already mean, up to four we're already up to 420 so i see i see we already have a higher concentration of 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 carbon in the atmosphere than is safe so at some point once we're done stopping the growth of our emissions which by the way continue apace are bigger this last decade than in any previous decade but like once we get that under control at some point we're going to have to pull some out but it's also true that oil and gas companies are using ccs in in a dishonest way in a way that tries to extend their lifetime and in a way that tries to extend the lifetime of coal and natural gas power plants so it's all these solutions we need right. the good faith versions and we need to fight the bad faith versions and people have trouble holding those in their head simultaneously <laughs> so they just choose a, a team it's easier right. just to choose one side or the other but in all these cases it's like yes and or you like yes but you know it's all it's 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 always more complicated right. than a just thumbs up or thumbs down right all right so let's let's talk about some offline people i remember that when the sunrise movement became prominent a few years ago i think was it 2018 that they became prompt 2018 2019 
Uh, I mean, um, they were rising during the election and during, in the immediate aftermath of the election. I mean, remember when AOC went and had her little thing in Pelosi's office? That was before that was before the term of right. Congress started. So I think that was 2016, wasn't it? Or no, wait. I thought it, I thought it was, 20, I'm sorry. No, 2020 wasn't elected until 2020. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of like uh, around yeah. the election of Biden and, and in the immediate aftermath is where they okay. really came into so, their own. So, you know, I'm I'm friends with uh, Shaikat Chakrabarty, who started that movement himself. Um, but I, you know, and, and I hadn't paid much attention to the Sunrise Movement, except for uh, that odd stunt in Diane Feinstein's office that seemed to not go very well. But then um, but then recently I've been hearing all these reports about them. Um, local chapters of the sunrise movement blocking solar projects um and of course the the national sunrise movement basically condemning nuclear power condemning direct air capture we already talked about that but blocking solar projects and teaming up with local nimbys to block some of these projects and um i'm just sort of thinking like I, I'm I'm inching closer to to Matt Iglesias, your old colleague Matt Iglesias, <laughs> that sunrise inch, inch away, inch away is sort of fake. In that, uh, th these are not people like they're raising awareness and maybe fixing climate change in the minds of people who actually are positioned to do something about it, which is good. But they're fighting against good solutions on the ground, which is bad, and also giving climate activism this sort of cartoonish uh reputation uh i have a lot a lot to say on this subject um i think anyway. uh uh matt's gone completely overboard on this based uh I, I fear quite a bit on personal peak and uh and a selective reading so where to begin the first thing to say is that sunrise has a very clear theory of change Right. It was built on the idea, uh, the whole sort of not just them, but the sort of in, the entire climate movement sort of went through this uh, during the same sort of 2018 to 2020 and around then period of the sort of realization that the climate movement, the environmental movement is just not big or powerful enough to make what needs to happen happen. We're talking about global transformation. We're talking about political transformation. And so this one sort of. <laughs> niche uh, uh, special interest group is how they're thought of and how they're referred to and how they're treated. It's just, it just can't do it. We got to bring the entire, and what's more, it's pretty clear at this point that the right is not going to offer any help anytime soon in the US context. So what's left? You have to bring the entire left together. That's the theory of change is you have to unite the entire left so that it is a single uh, uh, force. And to do that, you have to, you cannot just be solely about tons of carbon reduced. You have to take on some of the goals and values and concerns of other elements of the left, meaning um, economic justice, social justice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. Labor, That's you know, a, right. labor, That's a labor is a big... Right. It's a, it's you got to make an alliance. The problem yes, they're is they're trying to make an alliance. And so I feel like they're doing the opposite because if I'm looking at them and saying, oh my God, you blocked some solar projects, you suck. If I'm looking at them, you know, I'm like a center lefty kind of guy. When you're talking about the left, uh, you know, just as progressive activist groups, they're not that big electorally. 
in terms of numbers of people. And no, you're, they're, you they're, need to get just regular right. normie Democrats in the center left. And if regular normie Democrats are looking at you blocking solar projects and you sort of making a fool of yourself with like things that end up being anti-environmentalist, then how have you succeeded in uniting any sort of powerful block at all? Well, a couple of things I'd say about that. One is the extent to which um, Sunrise does these things you're saying is extremely tiny and marginal. Everyone has been blown up wildly out of proportion. And we have to ask, why is it that any opportunity to criticize the left is seized upon, highlighted, passed around in center left circles until it becomes gospel until it becomes the thing that characterizes the entire movement why does that dynamic happen it's not because of anything sunrise did well to be and, fair and to, to push back to, on that to, wait 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 okay. it's it's the sierra club that is doing most of that local nimby shit and that's because the central sierra club the national sierra club simply does it's part of the charter of the group they do not control those local groups and those local groups are composed of old people and old people just have uh you know this sort of they come from a previous generation and they just have a different set of 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 background assumptions and goals and believe me sierra club national leadership is aware of this problem and angst and very angsty about it because they know that every time a local sierra club chapter does something like this it reflects on the whole organization but sunrise is not nearly as involved in that as the Sierra Club, they don't near, have nearly that problem. Yeah, they have they have local chapter. chapters, but they're a much more unified group. So, so in so far as they ever are battling local energy projects, it is because um, those projects violate the the, the land rights or the economic uh, welfare of some other group that they are trying to win the allegiance of, so that they can long term build a bigger coalition. Now, the question of why the center left has come to view the sun sunrise movement as this absurd caricature, I think, has a lot more to do with the kind of media center left people consume and their and their predilections than it does with any objective behavior of the sunrise movement. Like it's okay. just become another I'm gonna like hating David, on I'm the left. Hating on the left is the is is the favorite indoor sport of the vast majority of participants in U.S. politics. Okay. I would make two points, actually, in response to this. The first point I'd make is, number one, if hating on the left is America's national pastime, you're done. Then, then go find someone besides the left to implement change, because if, hating, if the left is so hated, that hating on the left is the center left's favorite sport, you're done. That's okay, that but then, hating the left but, is but like who? The center, the, the center left is sitting and critiquing Germany, they're critiquing Sunrise, they're critiquing this group and that group, what are they doing? Am I going to put my faith in center leftists to solve this problem? What are they doing besides uh, critiquing the left? Well, Biden had pretty big, uh, you know, climate program that he put forward. Biden listened to the left. It was a weird, and of course now already in the past it was a weird chapter in american politics where biden won the nomination and then made good on his promise to try to unite the whole left and so he brought factions of the left together to create this climate policy that everybody could get on board you know based on 
um, uh, uh, standards, you know, rather than what did the obsessing sunrise over movement rate that climate policy. The Sunrise the National movement, Sunrise Organization. The, the National, National Sunrise, Sunrise Organization was extremely it, no, not, not Biden's first minus. Plan. Yes, that F was minus. that was a misstep, as they have acknowledged. But his revised plan, which he came out with after consulting with the left, is great. Everybody likes it. Everybody likes what it. Did to they the, rate to this plan? day. They didn't. They didn't. They rated his initial plan in the primaries. An F, but he went back to the drawing board and came up with something completely new after he had won the nomination, which was weird. He came up with something new and much, much better. And it was furthermore, I mean, the Build Back Better stuff was in its original conception was a set of policies that could bring the entire left together, including the center left. Like there was a there was no um it wasn't radical. It was just a lot of industrial policy, a lot of good labor policy, a lot of good investments, a lot of good standards. I mean, all the kind of things that you'd want to see. I, I quite liked it. And I felt that it was, you know, if Biden's not center left, I'm not sure who is. So I felt that that the existence of that plan and the process that you just described kind of contradicts the notion that the, the center left's main goal is actually to dunk on the left and hate the left because if if biden isn't center left i mean like well uh, biden's biden's i mean chuck you schumer can, you can call Nancy him center Pelosi? left but, but schumer's uh really into it i mean this is the thing is well yeah. this is a this is another point matt iglesias makes and he's correct about this the democratic elites the democratic politicians are into climate change right yeah. i'm talking about we're back to online groups i think i'm talking, okay okay <laughs> we're back to online I'm talking about your online center leftists, uh, uh, that kind of thing. And and you will note that it was Joe Manchin, who for some reason to this day is still referred to as a centrist or a moderate, who killed, Manchin, who killed the whole companies. thing dead. But uh, but the dash coal companies. I mean, this I actually think it's, a, it's some reason for optimism in the long term is that the 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 policy package that the Democratic establishment came up with immediately upon Biden's winning the nomination and then winning the election was comprehensive and ambitious and not alienating to any particular group of Democrats. It was, uh, there's a, a, an enormous amount of consensus, literally, except, Joe except for fucking Joe Manchin. I mean, <laughs> literally, except for that dude. All, yeah. you know, like the entire rest of the party was ready to go on a big, comprehensive and good policy package. So, I mean, that means something that's worth right. celebrating, I guess, I think, even though it appears the to other, be a store. Right. Bef so before I do want to ask something about that, but before we go on, I, I wanted to make my last point, which is I think one reason the center left has become you know, sort of more skeptical toward groups like Sunrise, uh, especially when there's any hint of nimbyism, is because on housing issues, we've now watched left nimbies stall housing reform in progressive states, especially California, but really every progressive state and every progressive town you want to name. You know, my, my friend who was a, a city council member in Ann Arbor, Michigan, talked about the exact same left nimby uh, stuff, stalling housing in every city across the country. It has been really terrible just a massive outpouring of grassroots left nimbyism. Um, and I think that there's a big fear that that could spread to environmental nimbyism as it has, because we've seen the Sierra Club and it Sunrise also has local chapters and it feels like 
the Sunrise Movement could simply be so hungry for power and importance within the Democratic coalition, within the Democratic Party, that it it does it it treads on the well-trodden path of the Sierra Club becoming a nimbiest organization. We've seen left. I, I, I don't think it will. I don't think that will happen. I will say, if you just want to bash NIMBYs, I'm I'm here for you bashing them all all day long. I think the extent to which ideological left groups are involved in that or driving it again has been exaggerated. I think most NIMBYism is um, non-ideological, basically, right? It, 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 right, it does not come from does not come from an ideology. But in uh, the Bay Area, left NIMBYs are oh yeah, um, oh yeah, oh yeah, and the, and 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 left. Yimbies are too, and the battle between left Yimbies and Nimbies is one of the most important ideological battles happening yes. right now. I'm totally yes. with you against Nimbies. I'm totally uh, with you against housing Nimbies and renewables Nimbies. I just think um, it's not fair to pin that too much on ideological left fair groups. Enough. It's a human. It's a very human tendency right and it's like right. uh it's like path dependence from 50 whatever years of a right. particular style of development i mean it's it's going to take a long time to get people to pull back and think differently about that and plus we've set up this system where objectively your house is your long-term wealth and so objectively it is in your interest to fight uh, uh, additional housing like we've we've you know it's not all irrational kooks you know what i mean they, they they really are defending their uh uh housing value so the whole housing system right. needs to be reformed and that is such a sticky wicket i don't even yeah. right <laughs> all right well, let's there. let's talk about that another day because we could go on all day about that but i have one more sort of politics question and that's about national messaging as long as i have been alive people advocating stern approaches toward climate change you know, vigorous approaches toward limiting climate change have spoken in the language of sacrifice. I have heard the phrase, the moral equivalent of war, which I think Jimmy Carter came up with. I, so many times I can't even count. I have heard the idea, the, the word sacrifice repeated over and over. And yet, and yet when you look at polls, people aren't willing to sacrifice. And, you know, they, they don't want to sacrifice to stop climate change. Yes, because people are selfish and short-sighted and don't see that the world is going to come crashing down around their heads and blah, blah, blah. But I feel like given the technological developments that you've talked about in this interview and that people in the know understand have happened and are continuing to happen, the need for sacrifice is much less and only in maybe a few areas. And, you know, an electric car is better in most ways than an internal combustion engine car. A cheaper electricity, you know, solar and wind can get you, in many cases, cheaper electricity than fossil fuels can. If you don't prop up fossil fuels and coal, then they go away and people just buy solar. And so cheap electricity and better cars are things that improve the standard of living of the average person. And yet I still hear from environmental activists, not just Sunrise people, but, but you know, wonky center lefty types, the language of sacrifice. Does you know, this, this is uh, this is hilarious. No, uh, back when I I got into all this in the early two thousands, um, just as mainstream environmental groups were starting to seriously grapple with this, it was still a politically obscure topic. It didn't come up in national politics a lot, but there was a lot of hand wringing and a lot of talk 
and the environmental, you know, the mainstream environmental movement uh, now and back then, your your EDFs and et cetera, are are basically center left. They're basically center left organizations. Right. And back at that time, I must have read dozens of hand wringing uh, articles from those people saying we need to stop talking about polar bears. We need to stop talking about sacrifice. We need to start talking about industrial growth and jobs and new opportunities. And they did. They have been ever since. So again, the, the, the bulk of the environmental movement long since turned toward talking about industrial policy and jobs and growth and et cetera. So again, I would ask you, why is it that every time an online rando says something that can be interpreted as calling for sacrifice, it gets grabbed and it's sticky and it gets amplified and it gets yelled at by dozens of center lefties. There's something going on other than an objective prevalence okay. of that dialogue. People are, se are seizing on it. Uh, I'll, it I'll, might be Australians. I'll, I'll put it this way. I hear more people these days saying what you just said than I do hear people actually calling for sacrifice. I hear more people denouncing calls for sacrifice than I do calls for sacrifice. So again, it's like, it's this fixation on a kind of lefty of the imagination that is the bait noir of so many people that hardly exists anymore. Like I have been in these circles now for, for almost two decades, talking with people at conferences, talking with scholars, talking with policy people, politicians, I almost never run across that. I almost never see it in the wild. I almost right. always see people like you denouncing it. So there's something going on other than okay. Well, that right. really okay. Let's let's talk about a specific um, a specific thing here, which is so. On November 16th of 2021, you tweeted, "I despair of screaming this oh, no. in the void." But <laughs> they voters keep a record of not, those things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I despair of screaming this into the void, but voters are not primarily responding to inflation. They're responding to a massive, highly coordinated propaganda campaign across multiple media designed to freak them out about inflation. Now, I am not an expert on environmental matters, but I do know a little bit about inflation and economics. And when I look at wages, I note that real wages have been going down for at least 75% of the wage earning distribution. And yes, wages have been going up for the lower 25%. So I'm happy that poor people get a raise. I'm, I think that's great. But when you're talking about the 75% for whom real wages have been going down over the past year and change, then you're really, you're talking about sacrifice. You're saying, yes, your purchasing power has decreased, but the fact that you care about it is due to a propaganda campaign that has convinced you to care that you are poorer than before. That care uh, about that. Yeah, this is. Don't uh, people have a right to be upset when they're poorer than before? Uh, that that uh, you know that tweet was. It got thirteen thousand likes. Jesus Christ! Because it because it was not because it was poorly thought out and dashed off without thinking about it much. It gave. Everyone, there, there are 13,000 people who are looking for a caricature. Someone saying, oh, it's all the press. And yes. because I didn't, because I didn't phrase my tweet just right, they're like, ah, I found one. And so now 
lucky me. My tweet is like, the it's on the flag of people saying it's real. People really care about it, which is like, whatever. It's Twitter. This happens. We all move on. I don't care. I've got lots of crappy past tweets. But I would my... like to clarify what's really yeah. at issue here. Like there are two things can be true. It is true that prices are going up and it is true that people are paying more. And it is true that for most people, wage growth is not keeping up. And it's all, so those are objective facts. Yes, true. But it's also to me, I can't believe I have to argue this, but like, to me, it's just trivially true that human beings live in a society. They learn, <laughs> you know, narratives and frames and concepts, and they learn how to interpret what happens in the world from their societies through these frames and narratives. And it's not like the objective events in the world write their own narratives. Those are cultural things. So you can imagine a populace where, there, where social trust was high, <laughs> right? We don't have one of those, but you could imagine a populace where social trust was high, where people viewed themselves as in it together, as it were, where you might have a national narrative that says, we just went through something really shitty. We all had to stay home for a couple of years. Now our economy's ramping back up. We're adding jobs. You know, things are getting back. But between now and getting things back running at the way they used to, there's going to be, there are bumps and there are supply chain constrictions and we're all going through this together. We're all paying a little more. We're all suffering a little together in the name of getting back to the, the healthy economy we used to be. Like that's, a, that's not an outlandish way of looking at it. it we just not. don't have that. We have different ways of interpreting events. We have a giant media operation that is seizing on everything that happens to make it look as bad as possible for Joe Biden. It's true. Inflation is an easy one for them because it is really happening and people do really get price information very, that. very frequently. And they don't get job growth information don't very frequently. They don't poor. get poverty numbers very frequently. So, and they, and yes, they are, they are uh, uh, objectively have less money to stretch, but that is not in and of itself. That doesn't tell its own story. There are lots of different ways you could view that. You could view that as, uh, as what it is, which is a way from a global economy to go from moribund to back up and running in a wildly short period of time and experiencing the supply constrictions and difficulty getting things up back up and running that would be expected doing that. A necessary price to get the unemployed a job is that everyone else has to get poorer for a little while. Yes, I mean, uh, maybe there was a way we could have done it without that happening, but like, maybe, but, maybe not though. And but, but, but I'm just what? saying, like, I, I feel like I'm arguing like something that's so obvious that it should be impossible to argue against, which is just like people interpret things through frames. I mean, you agree with that, right? Like, you, you can't just frame people direct, like suck it up. Direct, like unmediated knowledge. You have to acknowledge. You have to acknowledge, even if you think the pain of inflation was worth it, to ramp to destroy unemployment at maximum speed. Which I do. I think that you have. I think you have to. If you want, if you want to ultimately win the love of the voters who do not have the same preferences as the people who dish out Twitter likes to to dunks. If you want to win the love of the voters who vote, then telling people like this concern is illegitimate. Suck it up. 
No, obviously you don't want to tell them that. And, and I don't view, I don't view tossed off tweets as like the Gettysburg address or something. The public okay. is not seeing that Noah, all the seeing that is the 13,000 people who wanted to tweets. dunk on it. Like I've written a lot of stupid tweets. I, I've okay. got a lot of dumb tweets in my, in my background, but it's like the public doesn't give a shit what I tweet. Like real life isn't Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. What okay. we, we don't really know, we don't really have a good idea of what weird scraps of information and factoids and misimpressions and whatever else compose the average person's political worldview. We really don't have a very good idea that what we do know is that they don't know much, right? And they don't have very firm or settled uh, ideological orientations. And they often have very contradictory beliefs and contradictory ways of interpreting things depending on how they happen to see them or who happens to convey them. We know all this about people. And so I'm just saying like, how people interpret events is malleable, right? And you have a very large operation trying its damnedest to make sure that the interpretation of events is maximally okay. malign and maximally attached to a particular right. person who is not objectively actually responsible for all of it right. uh, uh, happening. That just seems like very obviously true to me. Okay. All right. Anyway, so I, let's uh, let's move on from that. I want to ask you about one. You got more dumb tweets. That was my only, that was my only um, <laughs> meet the press moment. That was probably my dumbest tweet of the last year. You, you, you chose the right one. It was, it was the only one I like. I know something about inflation, but um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm obviously annoyed with messaging by the media all the time. I have a more my own view is that the media attempts to reflect people's views back to them, and then often reflects the craziest views, especially in the subscription dependent media age where you don't have big monopolies who can just say whatever they want. Instead, you have, you know most organizations are like scrabbling for a few dollars and just want to tell you what you want to hear. So if people are mad about inflation, you know, Vox or sorry to pick on your old employer, just any, any old random, you know, outlet will be like USA today. I don't know. will be like inflation because that's what people want to hear. That's my own view. I don't, but, you know, but where do you think people, where do you think those views come from? Like, where do those views originate? Where do they self organizing endogenous? No, people are mad because it costs money to go to the store and they're like, but like, why, why do, um, why do most Americans think that unemployment is up rather than down? Where did they get that? I mean, they, they, that's just a very recent poll. Most, most <laughs> Americans are not familiar with the fact that unemployment is falling. No, they're not. Why? Why though? Where did they get that view? There's I nowhere but the media People to get crime it. Crime was going up for 20 years after it started going down. I know. Why do we think they think that? It's because you have a giant machine filling their ears with that at every opportunity. Like, I'm not. Who says I, unemployment's up. No one says unemployment's up. The, the, did you not see the, the poll that just came out? Americans do not know that unemployment is 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 falling. They do not know, know that it's at told, a historic. Who told them unemployment was up? No, nobody publishes that. Not even Newsmax. Uh, I guarantee if you watch a week of right-wing news, maybe no one will say, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure maybe someone will say, but the impression that things are shitty, the impression that everything's going badly, the impression that the economy's in a generalized whole. I mean, most people, I think, if you ask them to define inflation, wouldn't even know 
really what it meant. Yeah. They just think everything's shitty and they see high gas prices when they drive by the gas sign and they yes. pay more for a loaf of bread and yeah. how they interpret all that, what frame they put it into, what theory, what worldview, how they integrate that into their worldview doesn't just come from nothing. It comes from what they've heard from the, the, the media figures and political figures that they trust and listen to. All right. So I wanted to, uh, you know, we, we've gone on a while. I wanted to ask you about one more thing before we go. And this is going to be probably the hardest, uh, the hardest question. Save the best for last, <laughs> which is everybody knows that the United States needs to, needs to get its act together on climate change and other countries can definitely do more. But when you look at where emissions are coming from, you see China absolutely dominating the scale. At this point, most people will switch to talking about per capita emissions. China's per capita emissions are still lower, although they're getting up there. Um, they're catching up very quick and uh, almost to the level of Europe right now, pretty close. But so people talk about per capita, but of course the climate doesn't care about per capita. The climate doesn't even know how many people there are. And so um, if we're talking about just in terms of like degrees of Celsius uh, warming, then you know China is is, the biggie and they're still increasing and other countries in asia uh are less to less degree on both but still somewhat of a, a a big deal but especially china um is building out tons of coal plants china is you know just absolutely you know they're not their emissions aren't increasing as fast as they were before they've slowed the rate of growth of rate of growth of carbon in the air that they create but they, they're still, their emissions are still slowly growing and they're still just building out massive amounts of coal. And they emit well over twice of what we emit. They emit more than all developed countries combined. That one country, China, emits more than all of the developed countries combined uh, in just that country. What do we do about that? Do we just sit there powerless and like, <laughs> like Greta Thunberg? Or do, what can we do? Uh, uh, well, I, want, I would say a couple of things about that. One is, some of the coal surge coming from China, there is a, there is a surge in buying coal, is temporary and has to do with this current energy shortage. It has to do with transient current events. The long-term trajectory is China's spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on clean energy and trying as fast as it can. I mean, who, who knows how fast it could go at the limit, but they've said, you know, they put out a plan that they're going to peak emissions in 2050 or whatever 2060 and head them down uh from there so it's not the the impression i think that's common in conservative world that china is just merrily doing whatever the hell it wants mm. is very wrong china is trying it's spending billions of dollars on decarbonization technology it's also as you know quite committed to economic growth and um you know political stability so that's what the that's what the temporary coal surge comes from they just have to keep the plants on but even the i mean even in the in the past few years even the coal plants they've been building a lot of that is because regional governors are only under you know only in a limited sense under control of the central government and they and they still get local rewards for building but those plants are being run at incredibly low capacity factors they're not being run very much like 40 percent you know whereas like uh, a coal plant can get up to 80 90. Okay. so the coal even the coal question is more complicated than that but as to as to what we can do i have been brought around 
to the view that the best thing we can do is industrial policy, spend on innovation and deployment of clean energy technologies that drives down their price. The best thing we can do to make China decarbonize faster is to make uh, decarbonization technology cheaper so that they opt for it uh, faster and more. I mean, that's the By simple building more answer. Of it and pushing us down that learning curve. Yeah, there used to be a really dumb argument in my world. I think it's finally done. Okay. <laughs> the one Should dumb argument that ever bring it back? <laughs> the one dumb argument that ever ended. But <clears throat> there's this there was this old argument between innovation and deployment. You know, should we spend to oh. to develop new technologies or should we spend on deploying what we've got? And it was just a dumb a dumb argument to begin with because mass deployment, you know, see our previous discussion of learning curves, mass deployment is the single best instrument to drive innovation. That's what drives most innovation in the real world is learning by doing. So obviously it's both. Obviously you want to spend on all phases of the product life cycle, right? From early stage research, get over the, the, the valley of death, you know, to, to, to market viability and then grow to mass scale. We want to encourage and accelerate all of those at the same time. So that was always a dumb argument. So we need to innovate, we need to deploy. Um, beyond that, I think the scary answer to the question is that we just have limited levers to pull to control china like I we americans tell, i hate to are tell not americans, used to not like, being uh, in charge of the world I know. you know we could invade i suppose but you know so uh, i mean one thing i think and this is i'm getting out beyond my field of expertise uh, uh here but i really worry about efforts from numerous quarters these days to push us into an antagonistic posture towards China to try to start. I mean, uh, um, Rubio, Marco Rubio flat out said it the other day, we're in a new cold war with China. That's what he wants. The right loves a fucking cold war. They would love, they would love that. Lots of people. We're definitely love... in a cold war with Russia. I mean, <laughs> well, that, that but, happened. But Russia's That's rinky there. dink. Uh, I mean, They're Russia's rinky, rinky dink, dink if, right? If China backs them, it, you know. Right, right, right. But so I, I mean, I would just say as a general matter, try as hard as we can to maintain a good and cooperative relationship with China so we have some influence over what they do on on energy and climate stuff and it would it would be a terrible tragedy if fighting over intellectual property or fighting over whether they're backing Russia or fighting over these other things which are all valid issues occluded or or preempted cooperation on climate because that's the big thing in the long term that's what we need them to do more than anything else in the long term is accelerate their own efforts all right oh i actually did have one more question can i can i go one more sure <laughs> all right that's so that would have been a good place to end it but i have one more question which is these days you hear a lot of people say they have climate anxiety they're very they're despairing about the future they wake up every day thinking oh my god the world you know, world is ending. What is what is anything I do matter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you have a message to those people? Yeah, I mean, I'm very. I try to be very delicate these days, in particular, about passing judgment on other people's psychological state. Because sure. I mean, sure, no I mean, judgment, no judgment. There's so much going on. Uh, 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 there's no reason not to be 
anxious. I will just say, all I can say is from my personal perspective, both for myself and from what I've heard from readers over the years, nothing is a better salve for that kind of anxiety than reading about solutions, reading about people out there working on concrete, not just sort of hand wavy, oh, we're turning it around, but specific stuff like, like here's the guy inventing a way to store electrical heat in bricks in a way that can then be used in industrial processes to, to, to substitute for fossil fuel combustion. You know, just once you, and you read, you know, three, four, five of those, you start to realize, oh, like there's just tens of thousands of super smart, public-minded, clever, good people out there right now putting their nose to the grindstone, inventing things, figuring out new ways of doing things. There's so much energy and goodwill and cleverness going into this right now. It's dazzling once you really stick your head in and realize what all is going on. It's amazing what's going on. So yes, all the doom and gloom stuff is, is real, but, but beneath the surface layer of, of kind of frozen, shitty politics, there's a whole layer of, of thought and innovation and, and just effort and goodwill and activism going on right now. People are coming up with ways to solve this thing. And the best way to make yourself less anxious is just to like learn about them and get involved in them. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect place to end. Thanks so much for the interview. And Thanks, uh, keep on doing what you do. And remember, everybody, go to volts.wtf and read that substack. Thanks right. a lot, man. Peace. Peace out.